Welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two guests today. Lala Khalili will talk about the role of shipping in capitalist development in the Arabian Peninsula. And the journalist Kayla Papuchet will analyze the demonstrations in Belarus. A brief economic update. While the stock market celebrates itself, sings itself, and the rest of us aren't doing so great. Another million people filed for unemployment insurance last week, down slightly from the previous week, and well off the highs of late March and early April but still massively high by historical standards. Some 25 million people are drawing unemployment benefits, now at reduced rates, since the $600 emergency benefits expired at the end of July. Trump's dramatic executive order to reinstate those expanded benefits has had, quite predictably, little effect, since they were shakily financed and dependent on states to help out, which they can't do because they're broke and their computer systems are creakingly obsolete. One of the sources of finance was FEMA's Disaster Relief Fund, which looks especially unwise now that Hurricane Laura is pummeling Louisiana. And Congress, largely thanks to Republican stubbornness, isn't stepping in to provide any real relief. Meanwhile, lines a mile long are forming at food banks around the country. Trump is basing his re-election campaign on blaming Biden for the uprisings against police violence, and Biden is basing his campaign on, um, basically, that he's not Trump. Militias and vigilantes are prowling the streets with the complicity of the cops, cheered on by the president and Tucker Carlson. U.S. society is falling to pieces. It's hard to remember February before the pandemic and when it seemed like Bernie Sanders could actually become our next president. Okay, now on to shipping. One of the reasons I was interested in Lala Khalili's new book and the topic is that she's an extremely smart person, and so I was very curious what she had to say. But another reason is that I spent a few summers in late high school and early college working on merchant ships. And as part of research for her book, Lala sailed in a couple. Lala Khalili is a professor of international politics at Queen Mary University in London. Her book, Sinews of War and Trade, is an examination of the contribution of shipping to the development of capitalism in the Middle East. The maritime industry is crucial to the global economy, but it operates largely out of view and frequently with little or no regulation. Here's Lala Khalili to explain. God, it's almost like time publicity for your book, but that uh, that ship that blew up in Beirut uh, the yes. other week, that really uh, contains a lot of the story you tell in the book in just one one anecdote, right? What, what is the story of that ship and how does it relate to the, the larger story you're telling? So one of the things that I really wanted to do in the book is to show that what happens in shipping and maritime uh, trade in a place like the Arabian Peninsula is actually interconnected throughout the world with entirely inseparable and distinguishable conduits of capital, of uh, rules, of uh, trade and finance that travel, of and of course of legal forms of chicanery that actually allow capital to to accumulate in a kind of an unfettered way. So that story was to, to me really important, um, in part because, of course, when people talk about Arabian Peninsula, they always talk about it as this kind of uh, site of oil and bling and uh, exceptionalize it. And I just really wanted to situate the Arabian Peninsula in the world. And then what happens in Beirut really actually encapsulates that in some incredibly fundamental, incredibly obvious sorts of ways. So we know that, th- that there was somebody doing some maintenance work on a uh, in a warehouse on the port of Beirut on the bulk carrier side of it. So the con- it, this wasn't in the container uh, carrier uh, container ship side of it. Um, and they were doing some maintenance on a warehouse. Um, something gets is set on fire. That fire then apparently jumps to some stored fireworks in that warehouse. The fireworks start popping off fizzing all around the warehouse and then uh, apparently the firework fire is then is set on 2750 tons 
of ammonium nitrate. This turns out to be apparently the largest peacetime explosion um, ever because there has been two other explosions of ammonium nitrate which have been incredibly devastating. One in 1947 in Galveston, Texas, uh, which destroyed Texas City. Another one in uh, 2015 in Tianjin. And neither of them were anywhere near this amount of ammonium nitrate. Anyway, what turns out to have happened, and uh, of course a lot of this stuff is a lot of what we know is still to be confirmed. But by and large, what seems to have happened is that uh, about in 2013, in uh, the summer of 2013, a, a Russian ship owner uh, decides to buy a ship, a bulk carrier. This, the bulk carriers don't carry containers. They hold material in bags or pallets or boxes or sacks in their hold. He decides to buy a bulk carrier. The bulk carrier was already 20 or 30 years old. The Russian guy actually... Uh, he himself lived in Cyprus. He didn't live in Russia. He registers the ship in Moldova, which is a landlocked country, with the exception of having river outlet to the sea. His own company, the company that owns the ship, is registered in Bulgaria. And the ship, because it's registered to Moldova, which is what the International Transport Workers Federation would consider to be a flag of convenience, and I'll mention what that is in a second, um, is not really particularly inspected uh, at the point of setting off. The ship itself was being crewed by eight Ukrainian seafarers and two Russians. I think the chief engineer and the um, and the captain were Russian. And the ship then, because it wasn't making very much money, it was apparently carrying this uh, load of ammonium nitrate from Georgia to be carried to Mozambique. And it was going to be used as part of uh, industrial demolition uh, for mine work in Mozambique. Uh, but the ship owner felt that he wasn't really making enough money on this trip and so decided to make an extra stop, which is something that shipping companies do. And the extra stop that it makes, it wanted to carry some uh, heavy equipment to sell elsewhere on the east coast of Africa on the board of the ship. Uh, in the end, it was not able to do so because both because of the ammonium nitrate that was in the hold and it had to have particular safety regulations around what was boarded on top of the hold, so on the deck of the ship. Uh, but meanwhile, there was an inspection of the ship. And in the inspection, it becomes clear that he hadn't paid proper port dues. He had, didn't have the proper paperwork for the material. And the material wasn't secured properly. And so the stuff was taken. Uh, actually, the stuff was left on the ship and the ship was arrested by the Lebanese port authorities. Meanwhile, there were debts that this guy, this Russian guy, had accumulated. And a, uh, a, a Lebanese company decides to take the sh him to court. The ship is then confiscated. It is not only arrested, but it is pretty much confiscated. It's sitting there. Um, and, and eventually, after about a year or something, the ammonium nitrate is taken off, uh, off the ship and put it in a warehouse. And in that year or so where the ship was sitting there with ammonium nitrate on board, the crew members, four of the crew members, four had gone home, but four of the crew members sat there without being paid wages, without electricity, on board this ship, which was essentially a floating bomb, until finally they were able to secure permission to fly out of there. So in a way, what you see in the case of this ship is, and this is even before the ship, the, the, this incredibly dangerous load is taken on onto the port, resulting in the devastation of the city of Beirut and the death of upwards of 250 people, from what I understand. What is horrifying about this is that there's an entire set of mechanisms in place which actually allow for this form of global trade to happen with very little regulation. So having this kind of a long, landlocked place be the ship registry which does not require a huge amount of inspection on this, having these unpaid seafarers working on there and eventually leaving the ship with about a year's worth of wages unpaid, so owed to them, um, and then having this, this material uh, being brought onto the port of Beirut. Of course, there are other factors here that are also shocking. So uh, why was this material sitting on the port? And so who exactly runs the port? And of course, the privatization of the port systems throughout the world means that there, you have multiple authorities in charge of this. And in a place like Lebanon, where sectarian divisions and uh, sectarian attachments and cronyism really plays a role, what you end up having is an incredibly dangerous incendiary cargo being unloaded from a ship onto the port and generating this incredible uh, devastation, this incredible catastrophe there. 
Um, and so the story really, in some ways, uh, in a very terrible way, illuminates that. There's also another story that happened around the same week, which was another bulk carrier running aground in Mauritius. And of course, Mauritius is an island in uh, the South Indian Ocean, close to the um, African uh, coastline. And that ship also, again, there were questions. It was registered to Panama, another flag of convenience. And there were a lot of questions, not only about why would the ship run aground, what sorts of both environmental and labor and health and safety mechanisms were put into place in this ship, which obviously uh, wasn't uh, up to snuff. And then also the questions about exactly what did Mauritius do? Was it prepared for this kind of catastrophe, which happens again and again? Uh, and of course, increasingly near to island nations, which are en route of these big ships. So in a way, in a terrible way, actually, these catastrophes sort of illuminate something of what I wanted to talk about in my book. Well, you talk about a lot of things in the book, and it's really rich. I just want to touch on several um, highlights of it. One is the, the evolution of, of shipping uh, and ports and such is really inseparable from the evolution of, uh, especially in, in the Middle East, is inseparable from uh, the history of colonialism, right? This is really That's a, a very colonial enterprise, which then, you know, finds its way into the city of London and, you know, all these other financial superstructures built on top of this. But it was really the infrastructure of colonialism that laid the groundwork for, for what you write about. I think that's definitely true, although it is also important to acknowledge that a lot of the um, city-states that border the Arabian Peninsula had very long pre-colonial histories of trade, in particular with South Asia and East Africa. So there's there's uh, a pre-colonial history of local trade and incredibly complex uh, apparatuses of sort of legal exchange and arbitration, etc., that predated colonialism. But of course, what ends up happening is that with the colonization of Aden in 1838, by the British as a way station, as a coaling station. This happens in part because the, the, the East India Company decides to switch its uh, ships from sail, sailing ships uh, to steamships. And of course, then it needed a, coal, a coaling station, which is what Aden uh, served as a function. And that becomes the first moment in which you see the uh, emergence of lineaments of a kind of a modern form of shipping, which is defined by colonialism and which is grafted onto the pre-existing uh, networks of trade and port life. So colonialism tends to be quite important in that sense, although I really do want to also mention that there's an entire kind of world of shipping that exists side by side alongside these kinds of modern, highly mechanized, globally connected ports, which also function as kind of coastal trade or licit and illicit forms of trade, and which exist in a kind of a symbiotic relationship with the modern mechanized ports that we sort of acknowledge and recognize from a lot of the uh, images that we see, particularly with container trades. Yeah, now the ports, they're an interesting story too, that New York Harbor is a great natural harbor, but the ports that were created in the Middle East were extremely unnatural, right? They were just carved out of, in a very hostile environment. You know, talk about the evolution of those ports. Yeah, it's kind of interesting because what one sees is that kind of a puzzling thing where Aden, for example, which does have a very fine natural harbor, has fallen entirely outside of these circuits of trade at the moment, in, in part because it has been destroyed by a war waged on Yemen by Saudi Arabia and uh, United Arab Emirates. But then on the both the Gulf Coast and the Red Sea Coast, what we find is that, in fact, those ports tend to be, yes, it, it requires an enormous amount of manipulation of the natural environment in order to create those ports. Because on the Gulf side, the sea is incredibly shallow. So you constantly have to dredge in order to keep up with these ever uh, deepening drafts of very large ships. And on the Red Sea coast, of course, again, there's a long history of seafaring to Jeddah in particular, which was where, you know, the port of pilgrimage for Mecca. But even then, before the sort of the mechanized forms of digging harbors, you heard a lot of stories or you, you read a lot of stories about ships being grounded onto reefs. Coral reefs actually run along the length of the coast. And so it's, it's almost in some ways the exact opposite of the Gulf side, where the ground is uh, in the, on the Gulf side, you have very sandy uh, underwater, which shifts with currents. Whereas on the Red Sea side, what you have uh, are these incredibly hard, uh, very difficult to dig, very difficult to dredge seas. And so, yes, there had an enormous amount of capital had to go into constructing these modern ports on both sides. And there's a constant, Process of maintenance that needs to go into it to keep it up. 
The ports, originally colonial, but then there was the rise of Dubai Ports World, which has become a behemoth around the world. Uh, yeah, tell us about Dubai Ports World. This is fascinating because Dubai Ports World is one of the most important port management companies in the world. And the reason that it emerges is several fold. It's both because of political reasons and political economic reasons. So the political reasons are that the Emir of Dubai was always a very good ally of the British. And so the British always were quite happy to allow for him to do whatever he wanted to do. And that meant that he, in many ways, was able to sort of decree what kind of business could emerge because he always, uh, the, the various uh, ruling families always took a cut of the best profits of the best companies anyway. So that was one reason. But there were other reasons. So some of it was happenstance. For example, the British withdrawal from Aden meant that a lot of the businesses that used to be in Aden in 1967-68 shifted over to Dubai, uh, shipping businesses, shipping-related businesses. And you also had other things. So, so with, the, with the Americans, for example, taking the imperial baton in the Gulf, uh, they were quite happy to have a very very friendly ruling regime in Dubai as well. So that all of these things essentially conspired to make Dubai Ports World uh, a, a quite a powerful, well support, politically well supported company. It is also an extraordinary com uh, international com company because one of the things that it does, and, and, and it is famous or infamous for being incredibly litigious in many places against various states, in particular if those states are states from the global south. It's very well known for uh, rejecting bargaining deals with unions. Uh, and in fact, it even tried to not recognize any unions when it took over the London Gateway Port, a new port that has opened here. And so there's kind of a long history of it playing hardball in, in very familiar sorts of ways, which has allowed for it to become the kind of a behemoth of port management that it has become today. I'm speaking with Lala Khalili, author of Sinews in War and Trade, Shipping and Capitalism in the Arabian Peninsula, published by Verso. And now the ownership of the shipping lines has changed over time. I was just struck by the story of Aristotle Onassis. I, I only knew him as, you know, Jackie O's husband, uh, but uh, he annoyed the CIA. What's the, you know, the story of Onassis and how did he transform the nature of the shipping industry? Yeah, this, the story of Anassis is also really fascinating. So so shipping tends to be, uh, actually ship ownership uh, tends to be very much fa family-oriented business. So it's fascinating to see, for example, the top three largest shipping uh, companies in the world based out of Europe or either private businesses or family-owned. Onassis was one of these characters who, after the Second World War, he was extremely astute and he sort of sniffed out the fact that oil was going to be a major factor. So he ended up buying some decommissioned Liberty tankers from the US. These were decommissioned ships that were used in the Second World War and transformed them into tankers to transport oil. He also ordered a bunch of new ships from Germany, etc. This in itself already was angering some of the US-based ship owners. And so there was an entire FBI file that was followed him, that followed him around. But what makes him kind of central to the story that I tell is that he ended up making a deal with some of the technocrats in Saudi Arabia circa 1950s in order to secure a monopoly over the shipping of oil out of there. Now, if you remember, in the 1950s, the oil in Saudi Arabia was owned and extracted and sold and distributed by Aramco, which at the time was not an Arab company. It was owned by Standard Oil of California. And Aramco started freaking out because it really worried about the fact that if uh, Saudi Arabia, the state, gave the monopoly to Anassas, they would lose out on the business of distributing the oil at the, in the ways in which they wanted to. And they also did all sorts of dodgy accounting and markup of their oil prices on the basis of distribution. So if they lost that, they wouldn't be able to do that dodgy accounting. In addition to that, this was happening in the very quickly after Iran had nationalized its oil. And when Iran had nationalized its oil, BP, Anglo-Iranian Oil Company, had uh, sort of instituted a formal shipping blockade on Iran, which meant that Iran could pull oil out of the ground but could not sell it. And so when that happened, and when Saudi Arabia decided to offer this monopoly to a non-US, non-UK 
person, Anassas is Greek, um, it really scared the CIA because the Dulles brothers uh, in the State Department and the CIA were wondering why Saudi Arabia would want a deal with a shipping company unless it was going to also nationalize its oil. So you had this confluence of the CIA and the US government and the State Department and the DOD, which was really worried about if Onassis took over shipping, would they get enough fuel for all of their strategically positioned military bases and military ships and military equipment around the region? And of course, and Aramco, and they all essentially conspired to try to stop this deal. Eventually, Saudi Arabia was taken to a court of arbitration and it lost in that court of arbitration. Interestingly, Aramco made some small concessions after that story, but essentially that confirmed the importance of shipping, which we don't often think about, to actually these incredibly significant decolonization moments and nationalization moments and some of the tactics that were used to stop these movements of decolonization and nationalization. And the subtitle of your book brings this out, uh, that uh, the, the sinews of war and trade, that commerce of this sort is inseparable for military power and imperial relations, right? They evolve side by side. Absolutely. I mean, it's like it's it's a symbiotic relationship. You have war producing um, and necessitating new forms of maritime trade. There, there's a wonderful story Mark Levinson tells in his book, The Box, which is a history of the shipping container, in which he talks about how the shipping container ended up becoming the standardized form of trade because the U.S. ended up using it to transport all of its material to Vietnam. And when these privately chartered shipping companies would get to Vietnam and would unload the stuff that the U.S. military needed there, they needed to bring something back to the U.S. in order not to come back empty. And so they started transporting Japanese electronics to the west coast of the U.S., which also explains the way that J the Japanese electronics ended up becoming such a dominant force in global trade in the 1970s and 80s. And so to me, that was fascinating because war here was generating trade, but in, in ways that are not necessarily exactly as you would expect. It, uh, the U.S. war in Vietnam ends up being very good for business for Japanese electronics uh, industry. Um, or in the case of the Arabian Peninsula, various wars have ended up being extremely good for logistics companies, maritime companies, shipping companies in the Arabian Peninsula and elsewhere. But also there is another way that they work. So the U.S. maintains a strategic inventory of the kinds of infrastructures it would need throughout the world. And it is fascinating to see that ports end up being one of some of the most important kinds of strategic strategic infrastructures that are maintained in this inventory. And I also have a story in the book about how when the when the US was going to war against Iraq, well, in one of its wars against Iraq, and they ended up um, having to sort of do a lot of their um, logistics work through the city of Jubail, which is on the Gulf Coast of Saudi Arabia, a Saudi official was kind of impressed that the American military had maps to the ports and the naval bases there that even the Saudis themselves didn't have. Those infrastructures were constructed by companies like Bechtel, of course, so those maps would be available to the US, infra, uh, US military and uh, security apparatuses. But to me, that was also fascinating, was that easy fungibility, easy exchangeability of commercial infrastructures for war and vice versa. And so that, that was part of the story that I really wanted to tell as well. And a labor, shipboard labor, I can... I had some brief experience of that myself years ago, and uh, but you, you um, have a chapter that opened with accounts by C.L.R. James and Michel Foucault, which are very dreamy about uh, the nature of shipboard life. The reality is very different, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's kind of fascinating because uh, if you haven't worked aboard a ship, there's an element of romanticizing shipboard life. I mean, you're at sea. It just seems incredibly beautiful. There's also the, the sense that you're stuck with people aboard a ship and therefore there's going to be the development of friendships and social solidarity. But of course, we know that not only life aboard ships is incredibly difficult, but that this romanticization often actually hides or cloaks not only the tedium, but also the sense of alienation uh, that develops there. So this hardship aboard the ship is not only because of incredibly backbreaking physical labor, which 
it is incredibly backbreaking physical labor. So people are constantly working in, uh, who are working in the engine room are often working at extremely high temperatures. And because of safety reasons, they have to, on top of that, wear really, really heavy overalls, boots and helmets. Uh, they're doing incredibly physical labor out in the engineering uh, en- engine room where you have these massive engines that are being fixed essentially with the kinds of tools that somebody would have in an artisanal workshop. So there's amazing skill combined with really hard working conditions. On the deck itself, they're constantly, the, the, the seafarers constantly have to sort of chip the rust and repaint it. And by the time they've gone around one of these big ships and gotten all the way through, they have to start again because, of course, salt water is very corrosive. And so they have to make sure that the ship stays ship shape. Um, there's cleaning work to be done. There is maintenance uh, on, on, on board the really big container ships. There's the maintenance of the uh, refrigerated containers to be done. And so there's the work never ends. But then there's also the sense of loneliness. I mean, uh, some of the contracts for seafarers is nine months aboard the ship and then a month home. And of course, COVID has completely turned that upside down. And I've been hearing stories of people who've been aboard ships for 15, 16 months now and have not been able to yet get off the ships to go home. And so if you think about it, you're nine months there without uh, very little contact with anybody in your household. And up until very recently, they didn't even have the possibility of connecting via the internet because satellite internet connections were so expensive. But within the last two to three years, that has changed. And so at least they can do, they can Skype with one another, for example, or with their family members or use other kinds of technology to see their family members. But it is very lonely work. And uh, some studies then th- that, that the International Transport Workers Federation has shown is uh, has, has completed is that um, uh, seafarers have some of the highest suicide rates in any kind of occupation. And, and, and I'm only talking about actually ships in which regulation is being observed. So even under conditions where health and safety is observed, because these ships are following regulations of uh, countries which do still have some of these regulations, it's still incredibly hard work. And then you have shipping companies which is the vast majority of the shipping business, where you are flagged to the flags of convenience, which means that your wages are less than you would imagine. And and the regulations are incredibly light. So there are times when, for example, ship owners can cut the amount of food that is is being given. And the stories of hunger ships is actually incredibly central to the story of seafaring. Or you have instances of health and safety not being observed, again, because of flags of convenience. And so working aboard the ship being unbelievably dangerous, far more dangerous than it would be in a a better regulated ship. And so uh, it is incredibly hard work and it's incredibly lonely work because some of the ships that I was on were enormous ships. They're as big as cities and they only have something like 27 to 30 seafarers working on it. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because in my brief uh, career, we had small old World War II Liberty ships that had been converted into uh, uh, freighters. But they're pretty small, and they had a crew of about 40. And a lot of that was because of union feather bedding. <laughs> uh, I imagine, you know, these gigantic ships are practically run themselves uh, with a very small crew, right? They do. So they do have, I mean, there's a lot of automation aboard the ships, uh, which of course also puts people out of business. Uh, but they, but there is also, the workload has intensified. So I was on a, I, I traveled on two container ships and one of them at the time that I traveled on it was one of the largest uh, container ships uh, in the world. And it really it only had 30 crew members running the ship. Um, of those 30 crew members, about six or seven worked in the engine room. About seven were officers. Um, and then the rest were seafarers that worked the decks. And, and as I said, they did the day-to-day cleaning, chipping, painting, doing all the other tasks that needed to be done. Um, and of course, the fewer people you have aboard the ship, that means that the amount of work you have to do in a certain set time increases. And so it is incredible hard work. Um, and these people are incredible professionals. I mean, they're just, um, they're amazing. And, and given the constraints on, on their labor, it is extraordinary the kind of work that they do. Um, and it's also unsurprising how terrible their conditions are. And then finally, um, what was your experience like? What was it like being on the ship? How did it strike you? 
So I went as a passenger, which gave me a certain degree of freedom around the ship. I could talk to anybody I wanted to. I could pretty much go anywhere I wanted to. I had to get permission to go into the engine room, but otherwise I could go where I wanted to. Now, it used to be bad luck for a woman to be on a ship. Is that a superstition passed? I didn't realize that. Um, I think that superstition has passed to some extent because the first ship that I was on, there was actually a woman cadet on board the ship. And the second ship that I was on, they were quite happy to have somebody to chit chat with. So that was also interesting because I was somebody who wasn't part of the seafaring world. And they actually found me entertaining as in as in sort of saving off their boredom. But the travel itself was um, fundamental to the research I did because I got to talk to some of these seafarers, some of whom, particularly when they were um, more experienced, the boson and the various uh, upper officers, some of these guys had been seafarers for 20, 30, 40 years. And so it was amazing to be able to talk to them about the transformation of the ports that they had traveled to, about the way that shipping had tra uh, transformed in a way that you really couldn't get that kind of info from anywhere else. And then arriving into ports was an amazing experience because, again, if you're coming from the land side, what you end up seeing and what you end up experiencing and who you end up getting to talk to is something completely different than you do if you're coming in uh, aboard a ship. Um, in fact, Beirut was one of the places that was on one of my routes. And um, I had a lot of my previous research that happened in Beirut. I consider Beirut to be a home from home. I have an enormous amount of affection for it. Uh, and it was a completely different experience arriving into Beirut by ship because what you see of the city and what you see of the operation of the city and of the bureaucracy that runs it and everything else is a very different kind of thing that what you see or what I saw uh, as part of the life I had had there. So that experience of being able to travel on a ship is, is was extraordinary. And if anybody's interested in this and they have a bit of cash sitting around, I had, I had support for my research. Uh, it's quite expensive to travel on board a freighter, but it is a truly extraordinary experience. I recommend it highly. That was Lale Khalili, author of Sinews of War and Trade, Shipping and Capitalism in the Arabian Peninsula, published by Verso. Her day job is as professor of international politics at Queen Mary University in London. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. That was some of Jackie Onassis by the late 70s, early 80s Boston band Human Sexual Response. Next, Belarus, where opposition demonstrations against the government of Alexander Lukashenko have gotten lots of attention. The consensus of Western coverage is that Belarus is an ossified Soviet-style dictatorship whose suffering people long to join the free world. The opposition looks to be a mix of professional-class neoliberals and discontented workers. The neoliberals want to go full capitalists. It's not clear what the discontented workers want. There's little question that Belarus would not be confused with a democracy. Of course, many of its neighbors aren't either. And its economy, while faltering in recent years, is among the strongest in the region. In a 2014 review of the post-communist experience, the economist Branko Milanovic sorted the countries of the former Soviet Union and Eastern Europe into four categories, as measured by per capita income growth after the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989. The groups were clear failure, relative failure, keeping up, and success. The clear failures had not managed to return to their 1990 income levels. The relative failures grew more slowly than the rich industrial countries, meaning that they were falling behind that standard. The keeping up countries grew at roughly the same rate as the rich ones, meaning they weren't closing the income gap but not falling behind either. And the successes grew more rapidly than the rich country average of not quite 2% a year, which, by the way, is hardly a breakneck pace. Among the failures, Ukraine, Georgia, the libertarian fantasy land we've covered in this show before, Bosnia, and Serbia. The relative failures include Russia and Hungary. Among the keeping up, the Czech Republic and Lithuania. 
The few successes include Latvia, Poland, and Belarus. Looked at another way, according to IMF data, a source not known to be sympathetic towards Soviet-style economic management, in 1992, the first year available, Russia's per capita income level was 45% of the U.S. As of this year, it's 46%. They've gone nowhere, in other words. Over the same period, Ukraine went from 24% of U.S. income levels to 15%, a sharp collapse. Belarus went from 20% to 31%, a not inconsiderable gain. Preserving a state-dominated economy served Belarus well compared to its rapidly privatizing neighbors. The opposition has a 37-year-old former English teacher, Svetlana Tikhonuskaya, as its leader. She was the losing candidate in the August 9 presidential election, a result that is widely regarded as fixed since Lukashenko got 80% of the vote. No one, though, has any idea what the real results would have been. Tikhonuskaya is now in exile and her husband is in jail. The opposition is rather disorganized, but it does have generous external support from the EU and the U.S. Our National Endowment for Democracy gave almost $8 million in grants between 2016 and 2019 to finance opposition in Belarus via support for media, discussion clubs, civic activists, and NGOs. That's not a huge amount of money, but that sort of thing would simply not be tolerated in the U.S. One doesn't want to cheer a regime that jails its opponents, but on the other hand, one doesn't want to cheer an opposition that wants to privatize everything in the name of neoliberal utopianism, the outcome of so many of the celebrated color revolutions of recent years. Here with more is Kayla Popachet. She's the holder of a Pulitzer Center Fellowship for Student Journalists and follows the situation in Belarus closely. Kayla Popachet. The standard line is that what we're seeing in Belarus is a rebellion against the, you know, the ossified Soviet-style rule of the corrupt Lukashenko. People have had enough. They want to throw off the, uh, the, uh, the yokes and imprison them. What's your reaction to the standard narrative? There's a lot of faults within the standard narrative. It shows that there's a unanimous and unified support uh, for the opposition which is very untrue. Lukashenko does have a number of people that support him. In fact, while there might, we'll never really know as at this point, we don't really know for sure whether he got 80% of those votes or not. We do know from even pro-opposition monitoring groups that went to the polling station that Lukashenko at least got 61% of the votes, which is very telling. Western media is only showing these pro-opposition groups waving their white and red, you know, fascist collaborator flag but they don't ever show you the other thousands of people that are waving the Belarusian official flag. That, that flag, um, there's a story about that flag, right? Yes. So that flag, there's a popular narrative that this flag was the original Belarusian flag. The history of it was that in Western Belarus was part of the Polish-Lithuanian Empire. And it actually comes from the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, that, um, that flag and that symbol, which is why it looks very similar to the Polish flag, right? In 1918, in the West, the Belarusian nationalists set up, well, actually it starts a little bit earlier, the Belarusian Socialist Hromada formed this flag, and it never became an official flag of Belarus until 1918, when the Belarusian nationalists formed the Belarusian People's Republic in the West. In the East, there was the Soviet Socialist Republic of Belarusia, which later then joined into um, a Belarusian-Lithuanian Republic, then part of a Russian Socialist Federation. And then in 1925, it became the Belarusian Soviet Socialist Republic and united with all of Belarus, even with the West, slowly but surely. Okay, and then how they come to use this flag? Does it have some significance? Okay, so... In 1941, the Germans invaded Belarus and they occupied, if not all of Belarus, um, and they set up a puppet government that was called the Belarusian uh, Central Rada. The Belarusian Central Rada, which collaborated with the fascists in killing Belarusian Jews and, uh, and you know, pro-Soviet communist Belarusians, they collaborated with them and they used this flag. This was one of, you know, Eastern Europe had many different puppet governments during this time, even Central Europe, and the Belarusian Central Rada was one of them that used this flag just for that two-year period. Then, you know, Belarus was uh, liberated on July 3rd, and they went back to their Soviet socialist flag. At the dissolution, and I like to say dissolution because Belarus actually, in the 1991 uh, referendum to maintain the Soviet Union, Belarus voted at an 80.4% which was higher than the average of the whole union-wide. So most Belarusians that voted wanted to maintain the Soviet Union, but either way, it, it still was dissolved. 
And when Belarus left the Soviet Union, August 25th, 1991, they returned to this white and red flag. Then when Lukashenko was elected in 1994, he changed the Independence Day of Belarus to the day that Belarus uh, got rid of the fascist occupiers. And he restored the flag that has come to be this Belarusian flag just without the hammer and sickle. So why it's making its reemergence now? There is this uh, nationalist rhetoric, the nationalist forces that, and combined with the liberal forces in the opposition that are using this flag saying it's, you know, it's more heritage. And yes, this is a little taint on our, our history, but this is our, our true heritage. <laughs> it sounds like uh, the Confederate flag apologist. Exactly, exactly. It's heritage, not hate. It's our her- It's exactly in, in the similar fashion. So it's more about heritage and it's anti-Lukashenko, right? Because Lukashenko was the one that put in this modern flag, which was inspired by its original Soviet flag. And, you know, because these people are liberals at the end of the day, they like to coincide Lukashenko being a somewhat a red-brown fascist Soviet dictator. And that's why we must go back to this white and red flag. And, you know, the young petite bourgeois liberal forces are eating it up. Yeah. Now, so this opposition, who are they uh, and what do they stand for? So unlike, you know, Ukraine and during Maidan, where there was many different tendencies, but mostly right wing and extreme nationalists, Belarus, luckily, and this is a lot to say with how Lukashenko has kept Belarus, never really had such a fascistic nationalistic movement. They do have them, don't get me wrong, but they were never as popular. And fascism is not really seen as good in Belarus, whereas in Ukraine, it was much more blatant and just horrid. It has deep roots in Ukraine, whereas it doesn't in Belarus, is what you're saying. Exactly. Uh, Ukrainian nationalistic history extends even before Bandera, which it never really did in Belarus. So who the opposition are, are a coalition of nationalists and liberals, neoliberals, liberals that want to become like Poland and and want to join the EU and are against Russia and want to live like the United States. These are who these people are. They want to privatize everything. So if you look at what Tikhonovskaya, Svetlana Tikhonovskaya said earlier that her proposals, when she was asked about her proposals, she said that her proposals were inspired by the reanimation packet of reforms. And this is a coalition that also set up the reforms proposals during Maidan, which was anti-Russia, privatize everything. You know, I took a look through their proposals that Tikhonovskaya actually linked on her website at one point. It was later taken down. They use Belarus's public health care system. They want to reduce the amount of public hospital beds. They want to privatize all of the state-owned industries. And, you know, Belarus is a majority, like all of its major state industries are state-owned. So this would have disastrous effects. They are neoliberals at their core, and they're colluding with the with fascists, and they are colluding with the imperialist U.S. and EU. Well, you know, if they look at their neighbors, you know, the, the, the experience of post-Soviet life in, in Russia, and especially, you know, the former Asian republics, has been uh, one of polarization and a creation of a new capitalist class, but also uh, a lot of uh, insecurity and a lot of poverty. Do they not see that as a warning for themselves? I, I actually had the privilege of going to a pro-Belarus opposition uh, rally that was held here in New York City about a week and a half ago. And I went and asked everybody, you know, do you think that this could be the next Maidan? Is this the Belarusian Maidan? And I think that a lot of people are aware that Ukraine had a really terrible situation after Maidan, um, that, you know, there's mass exodus of workers, of young people that are going into as labor migrants in their surrounding countries. But they do not think that that is their future. They have a lot of trust in the same way that Ukrainians now have a trust in Zelensky. They have a lot of trust in the opposition. And so at least that's the expats here. Now, the workers in Belarus that are, have been striking are also weary of the opposition. The opposition has not been able to successfully grasp and take a hold of those protests like the opposition did in Ukraine. So that's another interesting thing, which is like there is a little bit more workers consciousness in Belarus. I'm speaking with the journalist Kayla Papuchet. Yeah. That, what about the workers? Because, you know, it's, it's not all liberals, you know, like Western style liberals that are that are they're out in the streets. There are actually, you know, factory workers out there, too. So how, how do we break down the, uh, the these demonstrations uh, demographically? 
Absolutely. I mean, for the demographics, for the protests to even get to this size, to get to this capacity, there has to be some real discontent with the government, right? And there is. The workers do have a valid discontent with Lukashenko's um, government. Even though all the industries are state-owned, Lukashenko has been slowly privatizing them. Uh, they have a work contract system that is really, really suffocating. Basically, they're in a contract to work for one to five years, and they're not allowed to um, they're not allowed to quit without their boss's uh, permission, but their boss at any point can choose to fire them. Their wages have gone down. And if you look, the amount of workers that are working in the uh, public sector has decreased now down to 43%. So uh, there, there's a lot of complaints within the workers. Um, their trade unions have also been, you know, they're not allowed to be independent is one of their biggest claims. But because of, you know, their work and consciousness and them understanding that the opposition doesn't have their, doesn't really have their best interests in line, they've kind of just remained on their own. They're like the third way outside of this. But all this to say is that the leftist movement in Belarus is not as strong and doesn't have as much financing as the opposition does. The opposition is getting 53 million euros in regime change initiatives. The opposition, since, you know, in 2019 alone, the National Endowment for Democracy gave them 1.7 million. The Polish government, the Polish prime minister today announced that he's giving 50 million zlotys to help with regime change measures in Belarus. So this is the conflict. Yeah, a friend of mine uh, noted that uh, they distributed an awful lot of those uh, red and white flags and all very quickly and suggested that perhaps there were some outside forces involved in that. Um, so is it what, what's the EU, Poland? Who, who else is um, helping to fund the opposition? So the National Endowment for Democracy and the Polish uh, 50 million Zolotis is supposed to be in partnership with the United States, though it hasn't been announced yet how much the United States of that 50 million Zolotis is the U.S. giving. Does the U.S. see this as a way to um, to mess with Russia? Of course. But you know what? I don't think that the United States is as involved as the EU is. The United States has its hands are really tied. We are going through an economic crisis. We just have a lot on our plate. And for our imperialists, you know, Belarus is there's not much to be gained in Belarus for the United States. It's not like they're going to be getting cheap migrant workers like Poland and Lithuania are. So they've been a little bit more hands-off than the EU has. But for both EU and the um, and the US, it is, you know, Belarus, unfortunately, a country of 9 million people is just being used as a pawn against the West game, against Russia. On the workers, you talked a little bit about this, but let's expand on it. Is there any kind of ideology, any kind of agenda, any kind of demands, uh, or are they just discontented? Yeah, they're very much more uh, discontent, but there isn't a really coherent uh, ideology behind them. In fact, there's no coherent single ideology behind most of the left in the post-Soviet space. You look at the Communist Party of Belarus, and they're seen as these old Stalinists, Marxists, Leninists. You look at the Belarusian Left Party, that's a hodgepodge of Trotskyists and Social Democrats. So there isn't one uh, coherent ideology behind this. One of the main demands for the workers is that they do want free elections. They do want to redo the elections. I don't think that they're happy with Lukashenko, considering that he hasn't really, you know, Belarus was in a much better position than it is right now. However, compared to its neighbors, Belarus is doing significantly better. If you look at life expectancy in Belarus, it is much higher than in Russia or in Ukraine. And if you look at the um, the child death rates, it's much you know lower in Belarus than in Russia and Ukraine. If you look at the criminal like um, it's called mob mobs mafia, it was always historically much lower in Belarus than in Ukraine, and that is because of the Lukashenko administration. So, you know, there there is that sadness that's like as much as they do have a lot to complain about, the options that they're left with are between hyper privatization and neoliberalism or, you know, struggle with what you have now and fight for another day. Belarus never really experienced that post-Soviet collapse that uh, the rest of the, uh, the USSR did, right? Absolutely. They did not face to the uh, rest of the degree as uh, the rest of the post-Soviet space. The levels of corruption, the levels of crime, the levels of drug and alcoholism, they were able to maintain, the, you know, their, their uh, public health care system, their reliable transportation, their reduced higher education. Uh, which is not afforded to, you know, the people in Ukraine or in Russia. And it's, it's really, it's really unfortunate. 
But like I said, they do have some valid complaints that there's a reason why the key to any color revolution or regular revolution is discontent with the people. So where do you see this going? Is there any way out or is this going to be an impasse or further privatization, further liberalization? What, what's, what's, what's your diagnosis? If the opposition gets its way, there is no doubt in my mind that there is going to be a hyper-privatization and there's going to be a mass exodus of Belarusian people into its neighboring countries and the petite bourgeois is going to eventually, like they did in, from Ukraine, they're going to immigrate to Western countries, um, not as cheap laborers. But if the opposition fails, which seems a little bit more likely, what I think that's going to happen is that Lukashenko and his administration are quickly looking for his successor. And what they have to do is make sure that their successor is someone that's going to effectively be trusted by the people and carry on with the demands of the workers. But he he has lost a lot of trust. He has lost a lot of trust. But the government has now been fighting against the information war that the opposition has been had a hell of a head start over. You know, Nexta, which is based in Poland, has been a leading provocateur for these protesters, uh, putting in fake videos and fake news. Not everything is fake, but a lot of the deals that they're saying are either dramatic or outright lies. Are there any successors in the wings? People like Lukashenko don't necessarily think about their successors and groom them. So is is there anybody waiting? Not that anyone knows of or has said of yet. Nobody's there. They're definitely just trying to, at first, let's just ease these protests, calm them down. Lukashenko is very adamant that he's not going to step down. He's not going down without a fight. And, you know, it's probably the right move if you compare it to what happened when Yunukovych stepped down or if he was to step down, that would just autom- like in- do those so-called free elections. That is just handing it Belarus over to the opposition. So he has made it adamant that he is not going to be stepping down. So unless the opposition is able to do a militaristic coup d'etat or just literally throw him out of the country, then what's likely going to happen is that they're going to be finding a-, a successor in the future. But that's to come. They haven't said yet. They haven't. There's no one that's looking right now in the works. As Like I said, they're trying to calm down the protests, trying to appease the people as much as they can or as much as they'd like to. And then finally, the, the working class portion of the opposition, it doesn't really have much of an organization or a leadership or an agenda. Right. So they're in no position to step in. Exactly. They're much that of like a coherent and strong politics there. Um, and I think you mentioned this a little bit before that. There's been a lot of pushback towards the opposition and their symbols. And and that's another big thing for these, especially for older workers, is that, you know, their parents and their grandparents lived through the occupation. They know firsthand the effects of the occupation. And the opposition has lost a lot of people through doing that. So (laughs) it's likely that they're just going to try to find some type of compromise with the Lukashenko's government. That was Kayla Popachet, holder of a Pulitzer Center Fellowship for Young Journalists. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, some early David Bowie, memory of a free festival. It has an end-of-summer feel. Till next week, bye.